In this situation, as a nun, I have certain kinds of structure that I live within. And um, uh, with the best intentions in the world, a specific structure which was set up put us in a, in a position which ended up being difficult, though nobody saw beforehand that it would be that way, and nobody intended it to be difficult when they set it up. But the structure, because it was a, a concocted recitation, it put us in a position where we were different from other nuns around the world. So because the recitation was much more of the way that we governed our lives rather than the precepts, there's lots of ten precepts nuns around the world, but the recitation was the thing that we actually ordered our lives by. And that recitation was unique. There was nobody else in the entire world that had the recitation that we had. And as a result of that, we were in, a, in, a, in an anomalous position in the Buddhist world stage. Because as ten precept nuns, we had lots of other sisters, but we had no other sisters who were ten precept nuns who were practicing and training the way we were, which was much similar to the way the bhikkhunis practice and train, but we didn't have the bhikkhuni legal standing or ordination. So we were in a, an anomalous position and as for, you know, so this was started 30 years ago, and for many of the 30 years, it didn't really pose much of a problem. And then as the nuns got a little bit more senior and started traveling more, then it mm-hmm. became apparent as we were moving out of the monastery and trying to interact that we're in an interesting predicament. And then in the last few years, it became really apparent what an awkward position we were in. Because the fact that it had been concocted and it had been concocted by monks meant that we didn't have any direct access to the lineage or to the tradition by ourselves. Whereas the bhikkhuni ordination has a direct access to the Buddha and the way the ordination procedure takes place is that the women confer the ordination and then the monks confirm it but they don't perform it. So with the, with the bhikkhuni ordination, the women have direct access to lineage and to ground, and it goes back to the time of the Buddha. Does that help you understand? Yeah. That puts you in a much better situation, doesn't it? Well, that's the reason why I feel so much relief. Because ironically, I had never been somebody who was really um, that focused on getting bhikkhuni ordination. I mean, I thought it was going to be something that I needed eventually. But to me, all I saw were all the obstacles to making it happen. Yeah. But I had no, I had no idea it was going to have this kind of effect on my system. And what's different for you now in terms of your vinya? In terms of my vinya, I can't receive anything that I eat or drink that hasn't been offered in my hand. There's special things that need to happen if I have food that has seeds in it that have not been cut. So if somebody gives me a whole fruit, like a cherry or a peach or a grape with seeds in it or a watermelon that's not been cut, then there's a little something that needs to happen. I'm not allowed to mow the lawn or cut flowers or dig the earth. So those are the kind of simple, immediate things. And then there's other things that are a little bit more complicated. But... Um, it's not that some of it isn't that huge of a stretch from the way I have been living and some of it is less intense than the way I have been living 
So the way the recitation had been set up, it was set up where there's a few rules in our recitation that were more um, restraining than in the Bhikkhuni Vinaya. And then there's some complicated things that I have to figure out, but Aya said that, you know, she'd be happy to talk to me about them and that there's other people as well to talk to and to figure out an intelligent response to some of the stuff that it wasn't straightforward before, you know, how to, how to do this. So the reason why, you know, if I had actually received and read the letter a month ago, I would have said no, was because Gwen had just arrived. And I would have felt it was too much pressure on her to be making a commitment like that that requires um, clarity and ground and the knowledge that one is happy to be here and to support in those kinds of ways. So I brought you some vegetables. Do I need to present those to you? Or is it enough that I told you I'd put them in the refrigerator? Well, I have nothing to do with storing food. Gwen does. So the fact that you said you put them in the refrigerator is fine and Gwen can take care of it. So, you know, a glass of juice, you know, it has to be handed to my into my hand. You can't leave the jar on the table and say, help yourself. So I can keep juice for a night, and then I have to relinquish it. And then the next day, if somebody wants to offer me juice, I have to start all over again. So the way I had been living here was not only with the Siddharar Avinia, but I had made some specific accommodation so that I wouldn't drive the people in the city crazy because there wasn't enough support here mm-hmm. to support even according to my Siddharar Avinia. So I was storing food and making breakfast myself and preparing food when I needed to when there wasn't uh, food that was offered every day. So I had all these great plans about planting the garden and planting trees and planting flowers and planting everything. And now if I want to plant, I'm going to need somebody to help me dig. (laughs) Dig and cut and weed, because I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Why is this a restriction? The Buddha established the monastic community in a relationship of interdependence with the lay community and did so very, very deliberately. And the deliberateness of it was so that, you know, with a monastery, you don't need a central organizing committee. If you're not inspired by the way they're living, you just stop feeding them. It's really simple. And if, if you have no capacity to store your own food, it means you need to have contact with the lay community every single day, which means that the contact is meant to be something that then is a blessing and a benefit to the community. Because if we could store our own food, we could live as hermits in the mountains and not see you, mm. you know? Mm. But the fact that we can't do that means that we have to have contact on a regular basis. Oh, That's right. Which means that the community benefits from the example of the monastics. Well, at least that's the idea. Wow. Yeah. And then the monastics are supported by the lay community and realize that if I don't live with a certain level of integrity, I can't this won't work. People won't be interested to support. So that was the reason why it was set up that way. And for the same reason, you know, monks and nuns don't grow their own food. You know, because the idea is, in this tradition, the idea was, is, is that if, it's, if we're not being fed, it's not working. Have you any, sister, have you any expectations, and I hesitate to use this word, concerning uh, changes that the community might uh, you might be involved in the community or 
interaction with the community as a result of the ordination. Am I? I'm not real clear on even my question, but I wonder if you could find your way through it. What I'm coming back to is what you're saying about the the interaction with the community. Do you feel that there will be changes within the community as a result of your ordination? Well, I think any time there is a contemplative that is living with integrity, there is the possibility for the community to be affected by that. Okay. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because I was giving a, the sermon at a church that's in town, and the minister was very sweet because she she noticed it right away that you know when people were around me, they went into a much calmer mm-hmm. kind of place of being than when they weren't around me, and she commented on it. And so, you know, like my brother, he was he, he invited me to a group of people who are entrepreneurs. So these are all kind of high-powered <coughs> business people. You know, they're can-do folk, and they're really successful at what they do. And so in his introduction to me, he described them as type A and me as type M. <laughs> and, and, and really felt that there was a... A benefit in, in having contact with somebody who's got a different value system. So he was trying to get them to configure or to consider, you know, what would it be like if your bottom line was generosity and harmlessness? And that was your absolute bottom line that you came back to again and again and again, you know, rather than success and whatever else it was, you know. And so he, he asked them to do homework, to see, you know, what it would be like to live a life as you live and, and to have your values come from compassion, generosity, and harmlessness. The world will be a different place. So they were all really excited because they got it like that, you know, mm-hmm. that actually this is good stuff and that it would be worthwhile considering, you know. So, you know, I live where everything that I have is the result of people's generosity. And there's very little, like, capacity for me to orchestrate um, having my needs met other than through an interdependent relationship with other people. Mm. And so if people are not interested to support, I don't have what I need. And that is a radical departure from the way our contemporary society operates, which is the idea is to have as much resources as you need to get what you need and that you're not dependent on anybody to have your needs met. So it's completely kind of a, um, it's a twist on the, on the kind of contemporary value system. And so then you guys get to decide, well, what's the effect? You know, how does it feel living around somebody who's got a different value system? You know, do you, what does it do to you? What does it do to your own um, contemplations about your own needs or your own sense of, you know, the kind of distress that an individual can go through when they can't get what they want, when they realize that right next door is somebody who's doing this, like, as a full-time occupation? <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's up for you to figure out 
whether you feel that there's any benefit or not. Yeah. I have another question about what you just went through because uh, I guess for myself in your shoes, so to speak, it would be this if only I had such and such, then I'd quote, be happy. And then when you get this thing, for whatever reason, finally, the structure is now in place, then my ego would just go through the ceiling. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Do you experience that kind of stuff? Or, I don't know. I mean, I certainly don't experience it as, as, as in this situation where um, there's an identification with that um, ordination as being related to me and mine. Mm-hmm. What I see is the causes and conditions came together in a way where this opened up in this way, and now there's certain things that have shifted. But I don't, I don't feel it as related to me and mine, so I haven't, I haven't gone into, well, I'm, I'm a bhikkhuni now. So... So that, you know, it was one of the nuns who was present at the ordination was giving instruction to my mother and telling my mother that she should call me venerable. <laughs> and then asked my mother if she bows to me regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so when she got home, she was talking to her dog, Lacey. So she said, and what do you think about this venerable to Lacey? And how do you think it is to have venerable in the house? And what do you think? (laughs) She wagged her tail, and so mother said, she's wagging her tail, she approves. (laughs) So, I mean, certainly any of us have the capacity to identify with anything in any position or any... um, change in status or any acquisition of privilege is a natural place where there can be grasping and attachment and identification. My own personal experiences is, is that there there is a direct correlation between grasping and suffering. And I know that really well. And I also know that in this kind of a society to... Um, require that people refer to me as venerable is not what's necessarily helpful. So in Asia, they have, I think, some capacity to relate to people with respect, but they don't disconnect their warmth and their human relatedness. So they can do the respect thing, and then they can still stay in a, in a personal relationship with them. In this society, we do weird things. We have no respect, and then if we do respect, we separate. So for me, what's more important than the respect is to not separate. So that's more important. The non-separation is much more important to me than the elevation or the recognition of some kind of a status thing. And for me, I think that the respect comes when there's an appreciation of a deeper understanding, you know. Like, you know, the punks. Okay, so I go see the punks. They love me to pieces. You know, the way they describe me is sometimes hilarious because they use punk vernacular. (laughs) (laughs) The nun. (laughs) And it's with absolute respect. You know? It's what they're feeling. That's right. 
That's what counts. That's what's important. That's right. You know, so so in this kind of a situation, one needs to be very careful in my appraisal about what one does with all this stuff. So, are there any other questions in terms of how this relates to your own life or how you're practicing in your own circumstance with the challenges that you have to deal with? Well, I don't like to talk too much, but I would certainly say this, that the peaceful atmosphere, the energy that flows through you, sister, the peaceful energy is extremely important to all of us. And for my personal self, it is maintaining that peace in a world that is very Mm topsy-turvy. And... uh, We can't change the rest of the world, but we can certainly, as you found in talking with the entrepreneurs, that you can be an influence immediately where you are. And each of us can be an influence where we are. That's what I'm I'm trying to say. It's so important that each of us uh, walk peacefully. And if we do that, then others, if they're open, they will feel it. That's right. I have another question about the, the food, the food thing. If I wanted to um, bring you bread, and it was a loaf of bread, would you be able to eat that one day and then eat it the next day, or is that for all food offerings? It's only for that day. So, my particular rules are different than Gwen's. Okay. So I'm not allowed to store food overnight. So if I receive a loaf of bread for one day, then at the end of the meal I relinquish it, and then I don't think about it. Gwen doesn't have my rules. Mm -hmm. So she can put it in the cupboard, and the next morning at breakfast, pick the loaf of bread out and offer it again. Oh, okay. Okay. So So it would be better to give it to her. It doesn't matter whether you give it to me or to her in terms of that. But that's the reason why I keep saying that if I had received the letter a month ago, I would have said no. Because that level of support was not something that I would have expected somebody just arriving to be able and willing to do. I needed to know how she was settling in and whether she was happy to support in that way and all the rest of that. But that's why bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, if they're living according to the standards and according to the rules as they've been established, they don't usually live alone because they can't maintain the, the, the monastic discipline in the way that it was set up. So Gwen is now bringing you breakfast every morning? So she comes over to my house and prepares breakfast and offers it. Yeah. 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 It just shifted. Yeah. So before I was making breakfast and she'd come and join me, and now it shifted. But you don't need to worry about offering me things in the sense that it's not going to be okay because I will receive it and offer a blessing if I can and then when it's time to relinquish it, I'll relinquish it and then Gwen will take care of it. You get to do the dishes afterwards? Or? I get to do the dishes afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she makes the meal? That's right. <laughs> That's the mundane stuff. That's right. has to be done. But that's why, you know, in a monastic community, it's helpful to have a number of people around and to have different people to help out because, you know, there's 
with just two of us, it's not such a big thing. But when you've got a big community, mm-hmm. and, you know, making breakfast, it'd take an hour to make breakfast at Amaravati. You know, you've got 75 people to make porridge for. It takes a long time mm-hmm. for the water to boil and tea to make and to get the cups out and all of that. So it's a big thing. Well, if there's no more questions, so maybe what we can do is close with sharing the blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.